how to pick a low-cost ETF, looking beyond investment trust sector labels, and why Neil Woodford's flagship UK equity income fund has been ousted from the sector. Welcome to Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Emma Ajman, Personal Finance Writer at the Investors Chronicle, and joining me today are my colleagues at the Investors Chronicle, Leonora Walters, Personal Finance Editor, and Taha Lokhandwala, Deputy Personal Finance Editor. Also with us is Sean Port, Chief Investment Officer at Wealth Manager Nutmeg. Exchange-traded funds, or ETS for short, track market indices and give investors cheap access to a broad range of asset classes. And over the last few years, the charges of some of these funds have fallen even further. Taha, what sort of fees do the cheapest ETFs now have? So prices have come down quite a lot in the last two years. Uh, we've had a bit of price war between providers. So these days, if you're looking at a core UK or US equity tracker, they should be in the region of 0.07%, excluding transaction costs. Uh, there's a few factors to think about here. It can depend on how it actually tracks the index that it's uh, looking to invest in. It can do this physically, actually buying the stocks, or it can do this using derivatives, which is called synthetic. Uh, the latter seems to, tends to be a little bit more expensive. However, in the last couple of weeks, uh, Lixor, which is a French ETF provider, has launched two new funds at 0.04%. These are the cheapest uh, ETFs ever to be launched in Europe, and they actually bring European fees more in line with what you see in the US. Okay. Um, So what's been driving this kind of price war then? A couple of factors here as well. So the first is how much the industry has grown in the last few years. The last two years alone, there's been 222 billion euros of inflows into the sector. So now it runs a total of 648 billion, and that's according to stats from Thomson Reuters Lipper. As ETFs get bigger, they get more efficient to manage, which means that providers can bring down costs and still make the same amount of profit. There's the other thing as well, which is competition. There's a lot of providers in the sector, uh, and what they're doing is they're cutting prices to bring these inflows. So they're dropping their charges to get more of the sales. It's definitely a market where you have first move advantage. So if you cut costs, everyone tends to follow afterwards. Okay. But is there a risk that with lower prices, that's going to lead to a reduction in the kind of ETF quality we'll see? This is a really good question. Um, so there's a thing, a few things to consider here is that because there's a lot of range of different products, if you're cutting costs and providing something a lot simpler, then you're not necessarily reducing quality. And what I mean by that is, is that there's the synthetic physical aspect that I mentioned earlier. So synthetic is more expensive. Sometimes it can produce better results. There's also different things that companies can do as well, which is called securities lending, which means they lend the stocks that they hold, they lend them to other people, charge a fee for that, and then provide that back to investors. So this is slightly more expensive to manage, but again, obviously, additional source of revenue for investors. So as long as everything is being kept quite simple and normal, reducing costs makes sense. But, you know, as we saw with the horse meat scandal, there is such a thing as too cheap. Um, But as as it stands, most analysts seem unconcerned by this because it's a scale game. So as long as there's enough assets coming into the sector, then there's no reason why quality should be affected at this level. That's good to know. So since there are now a number of cheap ETFs available, what do you need to look at when deciding which one to pick? So the main thing is the index. And this this is always the most important aspect when you're picking an ETF. There are different indexes, different indices that do different things. Just for example, the FTSE 100 has 101 stocks. It's very large cap focused. The MSCI UK index, you know, which is covering the same market, has 102, but a slightly different sector weighting. There's the Morningstar UK index uh, that has 336 stocks. So it's um, somewhere in between large, mid and small cap. What you want to do is make sure you're picking the right product for for the exposure that you want. Then there's the way of looking at ETFs that follow the same index and the quality that they, they provide. 
So there's something called tracking difference. So what that measures is the difference between what the index did and what the ETF does. You would assume after fees that the ETF would always have a negative tracking difference, which means that it underperforms the index. But then when you include things such as derivatives and securities lending, that can sometimes change. So then there's another factor called the tracking error. And what this does is it measures the volatility of the ETF in reference to the index that it follows. So it uses more data points to check whether the ETF is moving in the same way that the index is moving. So it provides a more accurate version of how well the ETF can track the index. And are you able to give us a few examples of good quality and cheap ETFs? There's the two Lixor funds that I mentioned previously. Analysts are pretty eager to see how well they do because they are the cheapest in the sector. They're also very simple. They don't do any securities lending and they don't do, and they don't use any derivatives. They're also done one thing which they're they're following the Morningstar index which is relatively new to the sector as well but if you're looking for large cap exposure the Vanguard FTSE 100 ETF is uh, is probably quite good it's physical so it doesn't use any derivatives it uses some securities lending but it has a very low tracking area and a very low negative tracking difference if you're looking to the US market the iShares Core S&P 500 ETF is also very good it uses securities lending a lot more aggressively than the Vanguard product so it has a positive return above the index, but it also has a very low tracking error. Both charge 0.07%, so the lower end of the fee scale. Well, Sean, do you think we're likely to see this ETF price war that's been going on intensify further? Actually, I'm, I'm not convinced that it is, is a price war. Uh, we talked about Vanguard there. They haven't actually cut the cost of any of their equity ETFs since 2014. So we're not mm. seeing some of these big players cut costs but where we are seeing more price competition comes around really sort of more of the peripheral products particularly around currency hedged ETFs so if you look uh, a few years ago the mainstay was an iShares currency hedged S&P 500 fund that was charging you 0.45% a year now the best the most competitive fund now is 0.2% a year so that's halving of costs mm-hmm. uh, for what is quite a core product you know currency hedged for sterling investors that's quite important so we are seeing more competition in isolated pockets but it's very much around providers like Lixor, uh, DB, UBS, looking at the iShares range and say, actually, can we do better than that? Can we cut costs? Um, and often that's where a lot of iShares make more of their margin on these products away from the core equity beta like FTSE 100 and, and S&P 500. And are there any particular reasons why an ETF might have a higher charge then? You mentioned some of those um, large providers. Is there a reason why their charges are higher? Uh, it can depend on demand. It depends if there's much competition in that product. A lot of investors flock to the largest ETF because often they're the, the largest to trade. And it, it takes some time for a, uh, an ETF provider to build up the assets in a, a even in a much cheaper fund and then investors become more comfortable with it. Some investors, for instance, require a three-year track record, which I don't think is so relevant in ETFs, but some people have that hangover from active funds, looking at active funds and require a longer-term track record. Um, so I think it's partly that. It, often it's due to the index as well, bearing in mind that a lot of the revenue from this fund goes to the index provider. So when you look at core equity funds, say the S&P 500, the majority of the revenue is going to the index provider rather than someone like iShares or Vanguard. The indices for these mainstay indices are very expensive. Um, And, you know, why is that? Why exactly are they so expensive? Well, I think investors are still wedded to the indices they know and maybe the indices they track elsewhere. So, for instance, institutional investors may have other mandates that they have uh, where the benchmark is the FTSE. uh, So clearly they want to buy a FTSE uh, ETF. When it comes to wealth managers, I think they've got more freedom to buy uh, other indices and and be moving away from these uh, well-known indices. So if you look at the US, for instance, one of the big funds, core buy and hold funds for US equity investors is a Vanguard Total Market Index. 
that charge you 0.04 percent has 3,600 stocks so very incredibly broad and 91 billion dollars in it and the index is crsp not a well-known index outside of academic circles so there is the possibility that you get other indices away from the mainstays that do start to gather assets and where providers can be much more competitive on costs sure and i mean taha was mentioning that luxor one which is um, tracking morningstar so do you think we're going to see more of that happening in the uk yes i really hope so and i think that's one of the reasons that Lixor can cut the costs is they're using an alternative index provider. In the US, Morningstar is very well known and very widely used even in the ETF industry, not just in the fund research industry. So there are plenty of ETFs that are very large in the US that track Morningstar indices, so a very credible provider. Um, so I, I hope so. I think we will see more. We Actually, in, on the continent, you are seeing more index providers that are away from MSCI and, and FTSE and S&P, and they are getting traction as well. So maybe the UK is slightly different here that we haven't had much of that, that push. Okay. Um, and what do you look for when you're trying to choose a, um, a cheap ETF, what are the factors you look at? Well, first off, we always look at the index. You, you have to be comfortable. You have to want to own that index. Uh, and there's lots of different sort of nuances from between index providers, You know, particularly around the breadth of the, the index. Maybe, as we say, the Morningstar covers the UK. How many stocks does that cover? Are there any particular differences between other index providers? You have to be very keen to own the index as the first point uh, of, of departure. And then it comes to how well does that fund track uh, the market? So we look at the total cost of owning an ETF, which is the obviously the fees, the tracking performance and also how much does it cost to trade it how wide is the bid offer spread when you trade this this etf uh, we use a lot of institutional trading which lowers that but still you have to bear that in mind when you trade an etf how much does it cost to trade that etf you know what are the prices how key are the prices and that's often related to the size and how much exchange volume there is so it's the total cost of owning that etf fees are one of the biggest point of course so if you know that etf is half the cost of what you're paying already it's very very likely that the total cost of ownership is going to be much much lower and what examples can you give us of um, cheap and good quality ETFs that you might choose for a core part of your portfolio? Well, I think that I think the Linksor funds are very interesting uh, for four basis points, zero point zero four percent. As I mentioned, the US S and P five hundred currency hedge from uh, X Trackers, which is the, the Deutsche Bank uh, ETF business, that's point two percent a year currency hedge. So that's you know clearly uh, US equities are a very important part of a more adventurous portfolio, more than 50% of global market cap of equity. So it's important to think about US equity. So that's very low cost. Uh, things like the FTSE 250 are also very useful for UK investors uh, from Vanguard. That's 0.1% uh, a year. Um, that's a really good way of owning the sort of small cap premium, if you like. You know, FTSE 250 really is small cap in an international perspective. Um, so they're really good ways of owning. I think uh, if you look at bonds, uh, a new fund from iShares tracks the global aggregate bond market index so that's more than 12,000 in, uh, investment grade bonds across the world uh, with currency hedging as well and that's 0.1% a year so massive diversification incredibly low cost that funds has grown very rapidly already so that's a really good way of diversifying away from gilts you know gilts are very expensive so having international bond exposure without the currency impact is really useful that's fantastic thanks very much sean and taha for some really interesting points and also see taha's article on how to pick a cheap etf in the fun section of this week's magazine and the website now last week it was announced that lf woodford equity income will no longer be classed as a uk equity income fund by the investment association the fund which is run by star manager neil woodford has been ejected from the sector because it no longer meets all the necessary requirements leonora why is the IA stopped classifying this fund as a UK equity income fund and which sector will it now be joining? 
Um, well, quite simply, because it failed to meet the yield requirement. If a fund is to be included in the IA UK equity income sector, it must deliver a higher income than the FTSE All Share Index over rolling three-year periods. And um, a fund can also be um, removed from the sector if it doesn't achieve 90% of the index's yield over one year. Now, um, Elif Woodford equity incomes fear average yield at the end of December 2017 was 3.5%, but the FTSE All Share Index's yield was 3.6%, so not a big difference, but uh, yeah, uh, enough to get it out of the sector. Sure. Um, and um, you said, where is it going? Well, it'll get put, it's a UK fund, so it'll get put into the UK oil company sector, which is a sector that comprises various types of more growth-focused um, UK equities funds. So why is the fund's um, yield not as high as the FTSE All Share Index then? Well, that's to do with Neil Woodford's investment style and not just um, on this fund, which um, has been only going for about three years, um, but also, you know, across his career when he was at Investco Perpetual. Neil Woodford, he runs income funds, but he focuses on getting a good total return and maybe some nice yield along the way. So basically what that means is he doesn't just chase the highest yielding stocks in the index. You know, he looks for, um, I suppose, better quality shares that will deliver a better all-round performance. I suppose he avoids value traps because some shares have a high yield for a reason. Uh, and what this meant, has meant that, um, you know, over long periods, Neil Woodford's funds make fantastic total returns, but they're never the highest yielding funds in the UK equity income sector. So, I mean, should investors be concerned about this sector movement? You'll explain that's to do with his investment style. Should they be worried that this fund is now moving to a different sector? I don't think they should be worried at all, um, unless they, you know, they're desperate for, you know, a very high yield. Um, I mean, the point about the sector, it's, it's a classification. So put it this way, if you hold Neil Woodford fund and you know exactly what it does and what its investment style is, and you're happy and it fits in of your portfolio allocation, then just because somebody somewhere says, oh, you know, it's not this classification, it's that classification, it makes absolutely no difference. You know, you shouldn't worry about a sector classification. You know, is a fund in your portfolio because it fits with your objectives? And if it continues to fit with your objectives, then, then fine, you know. OK. And so what about the fund's total returns, its performance? How have that, how's that been? Um, over the short term, the fund has underperformed. Um, now, there are a number of reasons for that. Um, Neil Woodford had a number of stock-specific issues last year, including with shares such as AstraZeneca and Provident Financial. Um, it's also the way he takes strong sector biases, which is a you know a characteristic of the way he invests. And Neil Woodford has nothing in oil and gas and pretty much nothing in mining shares, um, and that has undermined performance in. Um, 2016 and in 2017. Um, I mean, if you look back at 2015, because obviously, right, his cumulative numbers don't look good, but in these instances, it's really good to look at the annual returns and see, you know, um, when, you know, when things were good and when things were bad. He had a great 2015. Um, 2016, 27, not so good. Year to date, still underperforming. Um, and it is largely because of, um, you know, these stylistic biases and because of his individual um, problems with um, specific stocks. But given that um, recent poor performance, is that something that investors 
again, should be worried about? I think it's something they should monitor. Um, I think what I would say is what's good about Neil Woodford is he is a veteran fund manager, to put it politely. He's been about a long time. Um, so you can look back and see what his investment pattern is. And he has periods of underperformance. But it's not just Neil. All managers, all active managers have periods of underperformance. No one's going to be top of the pops like 100% of the time. Um, if it's you know a short-term issue, then fine. And that's certainly been the, part, the case of Neil in the past. And, and, and partly because he does take big sector bets. You know, he's big on healthcare. He completely avoids oil shares. If you do things like that and, you know, you're vastly different to, you know, something like the FTSE oil share index, your performance will be very different to what the FTSE oil share index does. I think the point about Neil to date, certainly on, well, certainly the funds used to run at Invesco Perpetual, you know, um, these swings, they, they stacked up to good long-term performance. Now, we've got basically two calendar years of poor performance, 2016, 2017. So no, don't sell us fund. Don't be worried yet. Now, if this dragged on for years and years and years, then, well, maybe, you know, that would be a reason to go. But at this point, I think, you know, don't be worried. Just hang on in there. Um, I think the point is as well, what it underscores is if you invest in equities or an equities fund, you have to have a long-term investment horizon. You have to tolerate periods of underperformance like this. If you can't invest for at least five years, don't invest in equity funds. Well, Sean, Nutmeg's client portfolios only use ETFs. And why is this? And does that mean that you think there is no place for active managers like Neil Woodford, for example? <laughs> I mean, that's a good point. The last point about holding period is very important. So uh, when you're choosing an active manager, having a five-year holding period at least is very important because those styles, like like Woodford's, the styles come in and out of flavour depending on what's going on in the market. So for us, we like ETFs for their dependability. So when you know and you buy a FTSE 100 ETF, you want to get something very, very close to the FTSE. 100 ETF less costs. So for us, we focus on the asset allocation decision. So uh, we've had a good look, for example, at uh, UK equity manager performance. Uh, you may know the S&P came out with their annual survey about equity market performance, manager performance. Uh, and last year was a better year for active managers. 54% of, of managers beat the market last year, up from, I think it was 22% the previous year. So we've looked at that really closely. And actually, the main reason why active managers outperform in the UK market is whether they overweight small caps or not. Um, often by definition when you take an active bet as a manager you're going to reduce your large cap exposure in favour of small caps otherwise you're increasing the concentration of your portfolio and you're clearly when HSBC is 10% of the portfolio uh, any kind of bets to buy more large cap um, uh, equities increases that concentration in large cap so the active management performance is really strongly related to whether you own lots of small caps or lots of large caps. And we can do that very simply with an ETF, very, very cheaply. So we take an active decision on that asset allocation uh, feature, whether we want to own the 250 in more size compared to the 100. And we do that across across the world. So we take very active decisions on our asset allocation and keeping our costs low. It's a different approach. We think it works really well. But ETFs are one of the reasons we can do that. If we, the ETFs weren't here and they weren't for such fantastic tools, we couldn't make those really good asset allocation decisions. So for us, um, there are good active managers out there, but the dependability of the performance is really important. When you own a manager, you need to be there for five years, even if the performance only comes in year five. Okay. When would you decide to sell out of an active fund manager in that case? I think it's 
often it's whether the style has changed. You know, when you buy an active manager, you're buying that style and you're buying that style for a reason. You're not just buying that country or that asset class exposure. So you have to look at when style changes, when that manager's not performing in line with how that style performance is, is, is doing. That's very, very difficult. So I think it's also knowing why you're owning an active manager. You're owning an active manager like Woodford because you like the style, very contrarian, deep value, very long term, a lot of unquoted equities. Or are you buying this active manager as a core holding? Often when you're buying a core holding, you may be better off buying a passive fund, whether that's an index tracker or an ETF. And in what circumstances would you sell out of a passive fund like an ETF? I think often it's when a better one becomes available. Normally that's costs, but it can be tracking performance as well. So running these funds is not computer, it's not an algo running these funds. There are people involved, you know, managing dividends, managing acquisitions within these portfolios can be quite complex. And often you can see some underperformance around those big issues, you know, big kind of uh, big changes in the portfolio, big changes in the index. So how they're managed is important, but cost is one of the big features. So when we do change uh, ETFs in our portfolios, it's often because a radically lower fund has become available and we switch out all our clients into that into the cheaper etf because you know the performance is going to be better because of the lower costs okay thanks sean investment trusts are also ranked in sectors by their industry body the association of investment companies and while these broad sectors can provide a good rough guide of what a trust does there are a few examples of trusts with asset allocations you might not expect given the sectors they actually sit within leonora you've been looking at this what are some examples of trust with surprising asset allocations given their sector? Well, first of all, so I wouldn't say it's necessarily surprising. I think what this underscores is you can't just go by a name or a label. Um, you know, like you said, a sector, it's kind of like a rough indication. A fund's name is quite often absolutely no indication of what its asset allocation is. So do look at the fund's fact sheet and the fund's details. But turning to examples, I mean, there's a number of trusts, but perhaps from the sector categorization and from the fund's name, um, you know, you might not expect them to have the asset allocation they do. And an example would be Law Debenture Corporation. Now, the name doesn't really imply anything about asset allocation, but its sector categorization does. It's in the global equity sector. So you might think, here's a nice basket of overseas equities. Law Debenture Corporation, in fact, has 70% of its assets in the UK, and it compares itself to the FTSE All Share and, and lots of its top 10 holdings in that. So it is, at the moment, in effect, a UK fund. Okay, but how exactly can Law Debenture sit within the global sector then? Isn't it breaking its asset allocation, the sector rules for that? Absolutely not, no. Um, I'd say the AIC sector guidelines, which, which it publishes, they're, they're fairly, fairly broad, fairly wide-ranging, which they say allows managers to do what they do and the aim is not to constrain them. So, for example, the global sector definition is investment trusts whose objective is to produce a total return to shareholders from capital growth and some dividend income. They will have less than 80% of their assets in any one geographical area. So if it's got around 70% of its assets in the UK, it's absolutely in line with that. I think the point is here, um, you know, don't just look at the sector it's in, don't just look at the name, actually really do your due diligence in the fund before you put your money in it. And did you find any other examples of um, asset allocation that at first sight looks out of place in its sector? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. Let's be honest, there's, there's a lot of trusts. 
you know, and I will, I'll bore people and I'll repeat my point again, really don't just look at the name, don't just look at the set, have a look at the trust. But let's say another example of perhaps something that's quite high profile is Woodford Patient Capital Trust, which is run by um, Neil Woodford's company. And this is ranked in the UK all companies sector. Um, and it's, you know, it's geographic allocation is absolutely in line, nothing funny there. It's got at the end of February, it had 94% of its assets in the UK. But the point is, around half of this investment trust's assets are in unlisted companies. Now, UK all companies investment trusts typically invest in listed equities, and around 60% of its assets are in healthcare companies. So it's a 60% bet basically on one sector, which perhaps makes it more like a specialist sector fund than a rather generalist UK equities fund, which you might expect to find in the UK all companies sector. And what should investors do then if they find a trust that they hold has asset allocation that might be surprising to them considering its sector? Well, not necessarily anything at all. There's nothing wrong with these investment trusts and there's nothing wrong with the sectors they're in because they're complying with the sector allocations. The thing that's wrong is not looking under the bonnet before you invest in the fund. So put it this way, if you are holding, for example, Lord Debenture, and you didn't know it had 70% of its assets in the UK, number one, you have to recalculate what your personal overall exposure to the UK is and consider if, you know, does that meet what you want? Does it take you over what you want in the UK or does it still fall, you know, is your UK allocation still what you want your UK allocation to be? Um, If the answer is no, well, then maybe you need to reduce your UK allocation. But what I'd say is that doesn't mean kicking Lord Bench out of your portfolio. You know, look at all your UK assets, you know, and see, you know, is there something else you might want to reduce? Because what I'll say about Lord Bench is it's historically an excellent fund run by an excellent manager James Henderson. So I think, you know, rather than, you know, saying, you know, these trusts are unusual or the set is unusual, there's, there's nothing really unusual about it. It's just a case of, you know, don't just look at the surface, look at the fund in detail before you invest. And if you're too lazy to do it, outsource to an IFA or wealth manager. Okay, thanks very much, Leonora. Um, Sean, how important is it to be able to compare a fund to its peers and sector average? I think it's it's quite important, and as we just discussed, it's quite it's quite difficult to to see whether the fund is in the right sector because funds move around quite a bit, the asset allocation changes quite a lot. So it's it's important to to compare to the peer group, but that's not shouldn't be your your sole guide. You should also obviously think about the the market that the fund is in. If it's you know large cap equities, has it beaten the equivalent large cap uh, index? Has it beaten the market? So it's not just whether it's done better than the average fund. Has it done better than the market you're trying to to beat? in a sense and look at that over different time frames and understand the consistency so peer groups are very very important but i would caution as we just discussed that the allocation for each funds can be very different even in, in in bond markets they can be very different as well you know lots of different credit quality to quality in different countries there's quite a lot of freedom within funds to to move around their asset allocation quite a lot so uh, it's actually trying to compare like likewise quite difficult so it's one part of looking at a fund and what would you do if you um had a fund that doesn't have much in common with its peers then i think you need to know whether you 
want to own that fund. I think with every fund, what is your asset allocation? Why are you owning that asset class? And also, why are you owning that fund? So I think you know, very much thinking about why you're owning UK equities, as we just talked about, and then think about why you're owning this fund or, or another fund. So it's it's very much about why you own that asset class and then why you own the manager to try and outperform in that asset class. That's great. Thanks very much, Sean and Leonora. And also see Leonora's article on investment trust sectors in this week's magazine and the website. That brings us to the end of today's show, but you can also read more about choosing ETFs and LF Woodford Equity Income Fund on the website and in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle. Thank you for listening and have a great long weekend. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.